to Philippians chapter 2, which you might be thinking, hey, Pastor Steve, don't you know it's Christmas? We should be in Matthew or Luke, and that's or some Isaiah prophecy or something like that. But I would like you to go to Philippians chapter 2 with me, and I would like to read this chapter for you. And in light of the theme of the music we have heard, what Jennifer just shared with us, I think it was very well divinely appointed that I would talk to you about what I want to talk about this morning and really kind of set things up for, the, for communion and then really tee it up for not only what we're going to do tonight but for next week as well as we come into the Christmas uh, fervency, so to speak. But Paul is writing to the Philippians, a first century church, people that were very proud of their heritage. They were proud of being citizens. If you know anything about the first century, the church at Philippi, was a free state city, and this was a city filled with citizens, and they were very proud of it. Reminds me, actually, of St. John's, Newfoundland. We are proud of our city. We are proud of our heritage. We are proud to say this is home. And so in the middle of this letter, here is what Paul writes to this wee little church. That's actually a very good church, and he says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so, with that as our backdrop, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his or her own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, not just any death, death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And therefore, because of that, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not all only as in my presence But much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And here's where it gets practical. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Oops. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. 
I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. I want to talk to you for a few minutes just as we get ready for communion on this in the middle of December of 2018 and Christmas in light of the things we have sung and heard and the way we've been challenged through music about keeping the main thing the main thing. Keeping the main thing the main thing. The older I get, the more I'm appreciating cliches. I really, really am. You know, there's a reason why we say you can't see the forest for the trees. And we get staring at things that are so up in our face that we can't get a grander view of things. And so this cliche, keep the main thing the main thing, I think is very important to challenge myself, my family, and all of you as my church family as we go into another Christmas season. Because there's a great danger this Christmas of missing the point. And I'm not referring simply to the idolatrous consumption and materialism. I mean, you see this. It's amazing to me. Uh, the last week, I've had to go to the mall several times, and I've dared to go into their new parkade because I'm getting soft in my middle age, and I don't want to walk through the elements. But if you want to see human nature at its worst, get into that confined area and see people jockeying for parking spots. It is unbelievable what you will face. But this is not what I'm talking about. What I'm suggesting for this church, for me and us personally, is that our Christian focus as a church, not only today, but even as we do things tonight and we celebrate our Christmas concert tonight, even when we have our Christmas Eve service on the 24th and it'll be a candlelight service and all of these things, that we can still miss the point of Christmas as a people. I mean, you can even be really spiritual I mean, this church has a legacy that even when Christmas falls on Christmas Day, we'll turn the lights on and have a service because we're that spiritual. We read the Christmas story with our families. We attend church every time the door is open or the lights are on. And we insist to others and ourselves that Jesus is the reason for the season. And it is so perfect that Jennifer just said what she did because yet we can sometimes still not see Jesus. With the eyes of our heart is what I'm talking about. Now, I know that I have made fun of my wife often about her love of Christmas. And I probably do that just to deflect because I love it too. And I know there's something about indulging in the religious Christmas routine that lulls us into thinking that we are dwelling with Christ when we are really just set to seasonal autopilot. We're going through the festive and sentimental motions And meanwhile, the real Jesus, the real person of Jesus, goes neglected in favor of his plastic, paper, and video representations. So I'm asking you for Christmas 2018 as a people not to get distracted from Jesus by Jesus. This year, I plead with the Spirit to interrupt your nice Christmas with the power of the gospel. And so with that in mind, that's why I read Philippians chapter 2. But if you want to, go to Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2. If you want just to take there, I just want to bring some things out because this is familiar, but I want to ask you if you've seen what is obvious, sometimes obvious but not obvious. You're not seeing the forest because you're staring at trees. Because in Matthew chapter 2, you will read about the wise men. 
And what a wonderful example for us this morning as a church. The wise men wouldn't allow anything to distract them from their purpose. They could have been easily distracted. They had read and studied. They had traveled. And no doubt they would have faced obstacles in their travels. But they arrive at Jerusalem not to a welcome. In fact, if you read it in Matthew chapter 2, the whole city was upset. Herod was upset. All these types of things. Herod and religious leaders argued over times and places and agendas. But the wise men simply followed the star. They were sensitive to the leading of God and ended up bowing before and offering gifts to Jesus. And here's what it says in Matthew 2. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening, notice, their treasures. They offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I, I don't want you to miss how singularly focused the wise men were not to be distracted from what was the purpose, which was to gather and find and worship Christ and then give Him lavishly and generously of themselves. It wasn't token gifts. It wasn't morbid curiosity. It was an intensity. When you hop over to Luke chapter 2, when we are introduced to Mary and Joseph, and you'll notice that in Luke 2, they don't argue if they should go to Bethlehem. We just are told that they go to Bethlehem. They simply did it. When the shepherds were in the field with their flocks by night, and they didn't get caught up in the visions of angels declaring the birth of Jesus, they responded to the announcement. They didn't have a Bible study and say, now what just happened? Let's analyze this vision. Let's talk about what these angels said. They got enraptured in the moment, and they ultimately were told, as we're told in the Scriptures, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it was told them. But if you really want to know my heart in the middle of December of 2018 for myself and for you, is what we will read about from Dr. Luke in Luke chapter 2, verse 19. Because after angels have announced the birth of Christ and Mary is pregnant and she doesn't even understand it and Joseph has had dreams and now shepherds have come and done these things, it says in Luke 2.19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. This Christmas church, can I ask you this? What are you treasuring in your heart? And what are you pondering in your heart? What happens inside of here? And this doesn't matter if you're introverted or extroverted. We live in a society that's looking for intensity of emotions, and yet we are so out of touch with the idea of what really drives us. So many of us just go through the motions of life. We get caught up and enraptured. We spend our days just reacting to events rather than ever thinking and pondering and treasuring. We do this in our devotions where we just get yearly Bible reading programs or we know we've got to do it. We do it in prayer time where we just get our lists and we just run through our lists. But do you actually emotionally and mentally engage with who you're talking to and why? Do you realize that He really cares? And this is what we read about in Philippians chapter 2 to this church. And on December 16th of 2018, as we come to the table of the Lord, I want to think of Jesus in three very unique ways, in three little thoughts, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. I want you to think of Jesus this morning as your Lord, as your Savior, and as your treasure. 
Is he your Lord and is he your Savior and is he your treasure? The Lordship of Jesus. Jesus' Lordship is tied to his divinity and to him rightly being called Yahweh. It's interesting, Matthew came to me last week and talked about this. And, uh, you know, remember I read this in in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Why? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I don't know if you're about me, but now I'll be honest and transparent. I love this passage of Scripture. I love people to read or sing Philippians chapter 2. i got to be honest, it gets my fire going. I want to get my hanky out and go full southern gospel when I read that every time. But you know what? Here's the sinister part of the evilness of my own heart. I read that and so often I read that and go, I can't wait till God makes all the people just bow and worship him. Like finally justice will prevail. And very often... I don't read this and go, hey, Steve, does your knee bow and your tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? And I'm shocked at how often I read the Bible through a lens of, yeah, God, go get them. Versus, oh, God, have me. Have me. You know, even Jesus is not only the name above every name, but don't you know in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, we're told that he's more excellent than the angels. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so for a moment, I want to ask you a question. Is Jesus' name the most high name in your life this Christmas? And I want you to see this, because for this morning, just a couple of minutes, I want you to think of Jesus as Lord. Just think of Jesus as Lord. First, let me give you the background and history about the fact that your whole New Testament, from Matthew to Revelation, almost exclusively calls Jesus Lord. And to understand this better, you've got to turn to the Old Testament, because the personal name of God is actually Yahweh. And in fact, that actually means the breath of God. And in fact, I challenge you to ever try and say Yahweh. You cannot say it without breathing out. And almost it's breathy to even say. You have to say Yahweh. You have to push air out. And that's the idea that you'll always know because it was God. He breathed into man and there was life. So God spoke. And so his personal name was Yahweh. And yet, the Hebrews were so sacred that they saw this as so sacred, they wouldn't risk mispronouncing it. So every time they came across the name of God in their scriptures, they wouldn't say Yahweh, they would say Adonai. And some of you maybe have listened to the old Amy Grant song where she talks about that El Shaddai and Adonai, all right? That word Adonai, but you realize this word means Lord, And so when the Greek translation of the scriptures was produced, Yahweh was then in Greek rendered kurios, which is the Greek for Lord. So in New Testament, when you read it, Jesus being called kurios had the effect of basically identifying him with the divine Yahweh, which now you understand why in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Pharisees would freak out whenever anybody would call Jesus Lord because they automatically and instinctively knew If you call Jesus Lord, 
you're addressing him as God. And yet the divinity of Jesus is everywhere in the New Testament. That's why I read these passages for you. Jesus being called Lord may actually be the strongest way the New Testament ascribes divinity to Jesus. You see, there are times that Jesus is called God in the New Testament. Luke loves, or Matt, Matt, Mark and Luke love this expression, the Son of Man. But over and over, page after page, Jesus is called Lord. And so knowing this, I want you to have a better understanding what we celebrate at Christmas. Because what we're saying is that Yahweh himself, the eternal God, in the second person of the Trinity, became man. And that's what we call the incarnation. I wanted you to get to wrestle with some of these religious words that you guys have heard about. This is what we mean. Jesus taking humanity to his person, being clothed, as it were, in human flesh. And that is called the doctrine of the incarnation. And it teaches that Jesus is the divine second person of the Trinity. And he took upon himself humanity in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, not by losing any of his godness, but by adding humanity to himself. And I know that that's a lot to think about in the middle of a month that's fully hectic. I get it. And wait, because I'm going to go even deeper yet. But a helpful way to remember this is actually a verse that I have read to this church many times in the past year. John chapter 1, verse 14, which is, the Word became flesh. Did you catch it when I read it in Philippians chapter 2? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being in the form, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You guys get little glimpses, commercials of this in the Gospels. You remember in the Transfiguration when Jesus goes up on the mount with Peter, James, and John, and then it says all of a sudden Jesus shone and his robes became white, whiter than snow, and Peter, James, and John just fell. To the... You realize what was happening? It wasn't that God took Jesus took on another form because he was clothed in humanity. It was in these rare moments that he actually let his Godness shine. And it was shocking to any human being that saw this. And so what we're saying is this. The eternal Son of God, without ceasing to be God, but remaining fully divine, took upon Himself full humanity. Now I'll tell you why this is important. It wasn't Jesus didn't do this just because because He could become a man. It wasn't just a show-off move. No, Jesus became a man for us and for our salvation. Oh, I want you to get that this Christmas. In other words, just like Athanasius said, the Word became flesh to save us from our sin and to free us to marvel at and enjoy the person in whom there is the unique union of divinity and humanity. Be still and know that He is God. Jesus is Lord The incarnation is an eternal testimony that the fully divine Son and His Father are unswervingly for us. Thus, He is our Lord. And again, here's my question. Is He your Lord? Are the eyes of your heart open to see Jesus as Lord today? 
this Christmas. No matter what you're wrestling with right now in life. Are you in the valley of despair or depression? Are you struggling with family issues or finances? Is your marriage not what you want it to be? Is school not going the way you wanted it to go? Is your relationship with your parents tense or or strained? Are you trying to make sense of relationships or love life? Are you trying to feel connected or like you have friends? You'll always come back to, do you want to find peace in the midst of the storm? Is Jesus Lord of your life? And do you understand what that means? Secondly, I want you to think of Jesus as Savior. Jesus is Lord, but do you understand what it means at Christmas of 2018 for Jesus to be the Savior? Because here's the reverse order of this. Not only did Jesus remain fully divine when He took on humanity, but the humanity that He took on was full humanity. We'll sing about it tonight at our concert when we sing Away in a Manger. Jesus has a full human body, which means he has emotions and he has a mind and an intellect and he has a will. And this in no way compromises his deity. And that's very important. Because if Jesus is to be our Savior, which is what we really like and we long for, the Bible uses a word that is often hard to pronounce and most people don't understand the meaning or significance of the word, and that is this. Jesus is our propitiation. Okay, so I gave you a a $50 word in the first point, incarnation. Now I'm giving you another $50 theological word now, which is propitiation. And here's what this word means. Jesus paid the price for our sin In order to do that, Jesus had to be our Savior, our representative before God. So in other words, he didn't just be born a baby, he had to live a human life. And we miss this often in our churches today. People think about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, but you'll notice I prayed this in my pastoral prayer. I long for people to apply the gospel by realizing Jesus lived the life for you that you and I will never live Because you and I are screw-ups. We fail. We get angry. We're short-tempered. We're selfish. We're self-absorbed. The curvature of our whole heart is always in on ourselves. And Jesus came and he lived the life that you and I couldn't live. And that's why the Bible goes out of its way to tell you that Jesus was born of a woman in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. We know that he grew in Luke 2, 40 and 52. John chapter 4 tells us that Jesus grew tired. In John 19, we realize that he got thirsty. In Matthew 4, we find out that he got hungry. In Matthew 4, in the temptations, in Luke 23, when he hung on the cross, we know he got physically weak to the point of fainting. Luke 23, 46 tells us that Jesus died, something that you and I must face as a reality. We also know that he had a real human body even after his resurrection because Luke 24 tells us how he ate with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus and John tells us how he had breakfast with Peter and Jesus showed all kinds of emotions in the Bible. Often emotions you and I don't think about. In Matthew 8, when that centurion had those words of faith, Matthew tells us that Jesus marveled at his words of faith. In Matthew chapter 26, we're told that his, his soul was very sorrowful even to death. Have you not had those experiences when you get that tragic news or you get shocking news and all of a sudden you are sorrowful to the point of death? 
I'll never forget for me, the, the, the closest thing I think I've really experienced from this was when I got the phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning. I was laying in bed asleep on a Saturday night into the Sunday morning. I thought I was going to get up and preach, and the phone rang, and there was a stranger on the other side who introduced himself as the ER doctor at the Halifax uh, Queen Elizabeth Hospital, and he said, Stephen, I've, I've been asked to call you. Your father has, has been bleeding, and we're losing his blood pressure, and we don't think he's going to live beyond the night, and if you want to see your dad before he dies, you better get here. I just remember feeling paralyzed in time. Your mind races. I had to wake Debbie up. I had to call people in the middle of the night to tell them I wouldn't be at church. I hopped in a car, and I drove, and for three and a half hours from Charlottetown to Halifax, I wondered, will dad still be there? And I was sorrowful because I tried to think, what am I going to do if dad is dead? How, who's going to take care of mom? How do, how, what's going to happen in life? And yet, my Savior has felt this. John 20, 12, 27 says, his soul was troubled. Oh, parents, have you had that experience when your kids are not doing things that you want or they're not working or walking in the way you want and your soul is just troubled? John 13, 21 says again, he was troubled in his spirit. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. John Calvin memorably summed it up like this. He said, Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. He's not just Lord, he's Savior. You see, Jesus has a human body and he has a heart and a mind and a will and he is like us in every respect except without sin. Jesus wasn't born with a sin nature like you are. He never sinned as a human brings. And that, my friend, is not only important, but it is absolutely necessary. And that's why Hebrews 2, 17 says what it does. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Here's this word, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And see, I know that you know this intellectually. I would love to know how many of you will apply this this afternoon. When you're struggling, when you're tired, when you're discouraged, when you're angry, when you're frustrated, to realize, wow, Jesus knows how I feel. Two chapters later, Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So what do you do when life is at your wit's end and you finally just cave and you scream or you yell or you lose your temper or you're selfish and you feel so embarrassed and you feel so shamed and you feel so frustrated and you feel so weak and impotent and you don't know what to do? This Christmas, turn to your Savior, Jesus Christ, and say, Lord, I thank you that you know how I feel. And I don't even know what to say. But you were perfect for me where I fail. And you're my Lord. I don't know about you, but I find this stuff amazing. This is what lights me up. The divine Son of God would not just take part of our humanity, but all of it. 
And then take that true humanity and he'd take it all the way to the cross for us and he would die there. He took on a human body to save our bodies. He took a human mind to save our minds. Without becoming man in his emotions, he could not have saved our emotions. Without taking a human will, he could not have saved our will. But he came, he became man in full so that we might save us in full. And hallelujah, what a savior, amen? Oh, and by the way, that is what makes Jesus so much better than Santa. You see, Santa makes lists. Jesus tears them up. Ephesians 2.9 says, For by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The good news is that despite our list-making tendencies, tendencies and our legalistic leanings, the list was crushed by the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. He is the only one who made the list in Revelation chapter 20 to 22, and we read all about it. And because he made the list, we are given the gift of him, his righteousness, his perfection, his niceness are bestowed upon us with list-shattering grace. Oh, that's what I want you to see this Christmas. We're offered something much greater than a shelf-bound elf that will hopefully report our good deeds to the red-suited guy up north. We are offered the grace of God who appeared in a lonely manger as a helpless baby. Sometimes it seems easier to hang our hopes on an elf and Santa, doesn't it? We've been given a Savior who drenches us in His righteousness and does not add up our deeds, good or bad, into a tally of a quantifiable list. And I'll be honest, it never makes sense in the economy of good equals blessing and bad equals coal. As one man writes, by grace our badness becomes righteousness. Our goodness often needs to be repented of because it dismissed the necessity of Christ. Everything about Jesus as Savior given at Christmas is radical. Do you realize what we're celebrating this Christmas? Jesus came not to make bad people good, to make dead people alive. He turned babes into kings, legalistic lists into glorious grace. It's all because Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. And I want to ask you this morning, is He yours? But finally, I want to ask you this. I want you to think of Jesus as Lord. I want you to think of Jesus as Savior. But finally this Christmas, I want you to think of Jesus as treasure. What are you possibly going to open up on the 25th? that will surpass the treasure of Christ. A songwriter recently sang this world, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. We know that Jesus is Lord. He has a name that is above every name. That's what we learned in the Philippians. We've seen how and know that He is also our Savior but I want you to know that this one who is fully God and fully man, and I mean that, that means I am saying that most of us here today would claim and believe that Jesus is God. Amen? All right, just checking. But I want you to realize when you say amen, you're basically saying Jesus is totally separate from creation. Yes, he became a man. This is what makes Jesus totally unique from everyone and everything. Now, I gave you the incarnation in point one. I gave you propitiation in point two. Now, put your seatbelts on for this one. Ready, Matt? Here you go. Because now you've got to realize that the hypostatic union of Christ is important. All right? Are you with me now? All right? The hypostatic union. 
of Christ. Now, I know that sounds like a fancy English word, but let me put this in simple terms for you. Hypostatic means personal. The hypostatic union is the personal joining of Jesus, two natures in one person. In other words, Jesus has two complete natures, one fully human and one fully God. You have to realize that you might be thinking, okay, Captain Obvious, thank you for telling us that Jesus was God and Jesus was human. All right, I want you to marinate on what that means because that makes Jesus unique from every religion and philosophy and worldview on the planet. So the next time your friend says, well, Jesus is just one of the options, or it's just as you believe what you believe and I believe what I believe. No, 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 no. If you believe that Jesus was God and Jesus was human, there are consequences to that faith and that choice. You need to realize, why do you bother with this seemingly fanciful term like hypostatic union? Because Jesus is not divided. He is not two people. He is one person. Our forefathers went before us in the Chalcedonian Creed of 451, and they said, His two natures are without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. Jesus is one. And now I'll make it practical before I get thank you from the theological to the practical. Because if you were to go to CNN's website even this morning, you will read about an article about how other faiths view Jesus Islam views Jesus quite highly. He is considered the seventh prophet in the order of prophets. He is the prophet of healing. In fact, if you want to, for some of you that have Muslim friends, if they encounter sickness, if, you, if they know you are a Christian, they will ask you to pray because you have access to Jesus, who is the prophet of healing. But there are aspects of Christianity that they don't like or agree with. In in this article on CNN, the writer carefully notes, pointing specifically to the incarnation that the Christian belief that Jesus was divine and human. You see, our Muslim friends are perhaps the most ardent monotheists in the world, and that's what puts them at odds with Christianity, and not only the Christian doctrine of incarnation, but the belief in the Trinity, because they cannot believe that Allah is is not just one person, but one in three. Because we claim that God is one God in three persons. And so the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man means Jesus is one focal point of our worship. And because of that hypostatic one-person union, Jesus exhibits an unparalleled magnificence. No one person satisfies the complex longings of the human heart other than the God-man Jesus. And that's why you need to treasure Him. You see, there's a reason. Here's another cliche. Have you heard this one? There's a God-shaped hole in every heart that only God can fill. Have you ever wondered about that? You see, God has made the human heart in such a way that it will never be eternally content with that which is only human. Our human tendency of flakiness can't shake our thirst for the infinite. God was glorious long before He became man in Jesus. But we are human, and an unincarnate deity doesn't connect with us. We need an incarnate deity. And beyond just gazing at the spectacular person of Jesus, there is also the amazing gospel-laced revelation that the reason Jesus became the God-man, are you ready for this? For you and me. This is why we celebrate Christmas. 
His full human nature joined in a personal union to his eternally divine nature is a permanent showcase that Jesus, in perfect harmony with God the Father and the Spirit, is undeterrably for you and I. And that's the reason why Paul would write what he does in Romans 8, 5. He has demonstrated his love for us in that while we are still sinners, he took our nature to his one person and died for us. Oh, my friends, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. But is Jesus our treasure? What are you treasuring this Christmas? He is unique and special. But, oh, church, listen, He's approachable. He's good. You can come to Him. You can pray to God as Father through Jesus' name. We are sealed by His Spirit, clothed in His righteousness. We're protected by Him and kept by Him and empowered because of Him. We're adopted through Him. We are joint heirs with Him indeed. Who or what could separate us from the love of God? And the answer is always no one. And that's where you find peace in the midst of the storm or chaos. The only question for everyone here this morning is this. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord, Savior, and treasure today? Friends, there's not a gift, there's not a pursuit, there's not a relationship that you can give or can get what Jesus can give to you. And I want to ask you as Christians, because I look out on the faces here and I pretty well know everybody in this room I want to ask you, is your confidence in Jesus Christ today? Where is your confidence as you face whatever it is you face this Christmas? The unknowns, the scary, the hurtful, the betraying, the long term. See, it's one thing to go through a temporary thing, but have to walk through a long transition of chronic illness or chronic pain. An ill son or daughter, a dying parent, a lost job, wondering if you're going to be able to pay the bills or is bankruptcy in your future, a failed marriage, whatever it might be, is Jesus Christ Lord and Savior and treasure, for He and only He is the answer. Do you remember that CNN article I said? Well, when you come to the end of it, having examined both Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and the Baha'i and all types of things, the author quotes this lady and she says this, apart from the religious aspect of it, the concept or the theme of Christmas, I think it's very much the same for all of us. What? No, it's not. It's not. Jesus is the only God-man, the only Savior, the only one who is a true treasure. And I want us to go home today as we celebrate this Lord's table. And please treasure Christ above all other things and experience the joy that only Jesus brings even when you're going through the valley of discouragement or despair. But right here and now as we come to the table of the Lord, I want to ask you, will you see Jesus as Lord Will you see him as God in the flesh, Savior, the perfect human representative to come and save us from our sin? 
And from these true truths and realities, you and I together can treasure Jesus above all else. Jesus, Lord, Savior, and treasure. Or will you be still and know that He is God? I'm looking into the faces, and I know if I had private conversations with all of you, and I asked you this question, would you like to have peace this Christmas season? I don't think there's one of you out there that would talk to me and say, no. But have you ever thought about what peace means? Peace means Jesus is our propitiation. Peace means that Jesus is eternally our Lord and Savior. Peace means that through Jesus we are accepted by God the Father. Peace means it was Jesus Christ who was the only one who can do this. And peace means that Jesus' offer of salvation extends to anyone who will believe in Him. Will you have peace this Christmas? To have it, you need Jesus. If He's your Lord and your Savior and your treasure, no matter what your life circumstances are today, you can and will have peace. Let's pray. Father God, I come before you as a person who needs desperately what I have just preached to friends and family and visitors. As I have read these words and proclaimed these thoughts and ideas that I believe your Spirit gave me, it has become acutely aware to me in my own life, with my own marriage, my own family of children and grandson, Lord, with everything going on in my life, with my parents and my in-laws and my extended family and our church and our vision, that, Lord, often I have missed making the main thing the main thing, which is you. Oh, God, I pray first and foremost that I would know your son, Jesus, as my Lord and my Savior and my treasure. Forgive me, Father, when I have chased comforts or possessions, when I have chased the idea of position or power, when I have chased the idea of dreams or vision and placed them above or in front of you, all while calling you my Lord and my Savior. And Lord, I know, I feel with these people that are my family in church. And I know acutely that there are people sitting here in these pews and are hurting and struggling and searching and doubting and questioning and they're wrestling. And I pray, Father God, that they this morning can be encouraged and challenged and taught how to have real peace, to trust you, to see you as Lord, to know you as Savior, and to treasure that up in their hearts as Mary did. And now, Lord, as we celebrate communion, I pray that this will be more than just a ritual. I pray this will be more than a source of pride and how right we are and the way we observe it. I pray this will not in any way feed our pride to think that we are somehow better than others because we're here today to do this. But, oh God, that we would just be humbled, grateful, amazed. In Jesus' name.
Amen.